2 Samuel chapter 2. Remember at this point, David, he's holding in his mind the promise of being king. He has found himself living in the land of the Philistines. God saved him from uh, a very, from an almost very tragic mistake. He tried to join forces with the Philistines and he was actually willing to go to battle with the Philistines as ally of the Philistines against the nation Israel and against King Saul. God saved him from that by, by the Philistine leaders, the five Philistine kings. They didn't want him around. So they couldn't trust him. They sent him back home to where he was staying in Ziglag. And uh, when he got back there, remember his family and the Ziglag was burned and his family and all the stuff and all the men's family was all taken. And right then he strengthened himself in the Lord. And we talked about what an important position that was in his life. How he'd, he'd kind of, maybe you'd call it today backslidden. He'd backslidden. He'd been away from the Lord for a couple of years at this point. He went and actually joined forces with the enemy, the Philistines. He's living in enemy camp. He's actually become, or, or really close to becoming a Philistine, so much so that he's willing to go to battle with them. So he's backslidden, if, if you want to use our terminology today. And we find out that he, is, as he gets back to Ziglag, he finds out the city's burned. It's just desecrated. All his wives are gone. All the men that were with him, all their families are gone. And we read back there, uh, he strengthened himself in the Lord. And we talked about how important that was as believers for us to strengthen ourselves in the Lord. But he's also here in Ziglag, and he's just got some really bad news. Saul, his best friend Jonathan, he found out they were killed. They were killed on Mount Gilboa. And the young man that brought him the news, uh, he, he, he couldn't believe that the young man had, had told him the story about how he had, uh, he had found Saul laying on his sword and Saul asked him to cut his head off because the, Amalek, or because the Philistines were coming and the young man was an Amalekite. And we talked at great detail about that and, and that whole situation. So David's situation hasn't changed. He's still in Ziglag. He's still in the land of the enemies. He's still trying to figure out, what do I do next? He's holding the promise close to his heart of him being the next king of Israel. God had told him that. God had prophesied that about 14 years before. So about 14 years he's holding on to this, all through the troubles of him being pursued by Saul, all through all of the problems that he was having, all through everything, you know, him, Saul, him coming across Saul, having the opportunity to kill Saul. He's still holding on, but he refused to raise his hand against God's anointing. He refused to do anything against God's anointed. He said, God, if you put him in office, if you made him king, you take him out. And he was willing to wait for that to happen. So we pick up this evening. He's still in Ziglag. And look at chapter 2, verse 1. <clears throat> it happened after this, and that's after the news of Saul and Jonathan being killed, that David inquired of the Lord, saying, shall I go up to any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, go up. And David said, where shall I go up? And he said, to Hebron. So David went up there. Now let me get your attention because it's easy for us sometimes when we see a short passage of scripture to skip over, to miss out on what God is telling him or what we see in the life of David. If you'll notice, it says it happened after this, David inquired of the Lord. He inquired of the Lord. And that word inquired, it means to ask to seek. It means to, he wants to know something of God. He wants to know, God, what do you want me to do in this situation? You see, the obvious thing, he's been, he already knows that Samuel has anointed him king. He ought to just move in and take the throne, right? But I like his heart. He says, God, what do you want me to do? He makes that inquiry of the Lord. I think we miss that as Christians sometimes. I think sometimes we fail to ask that question, God, what do you want me to do? We fail to inquire of the Lord because, you know, this is a big situation in David's life. 
He's, he's, you know, we'll use the term backslidden. He's been backslidden. He's, he's fallen back. He's in the enemy camp. And he wants to come out of there. He's strengthened the Lord. He's now got his families back because he, God sent him in pursuit of them. And now he's going, Lord, what do you want me to do next? You know, our tendency as human beings would be what? Just to move out, move forward, just drive on ahead, just keep right on going. Look, he, he's a man of war. He's, he's, I mean, he's next in line to be king. He's got 600 men following him. <clears throat> Let's just move. Let's just drive. Let's just carry on with the pursuit. Let's just go. But that's not what he does. He stops. And we read that he inquires of the Lord. Now, what we're not told is how long did it take for him to inquire of the Lord? You see, in our mind, we think he inquired and he got an answer just like that. It doesn't always happen that way, does it? But I want to talk a little bit this evening because David inquires the Lord. And I know that when you read this, if you're like me, you go, man, it sure would be nice to have God to tell me exactly what to do in life. It sure would be nice to be able to go, Lord, should I go up? And God says, yes. Where should I go? Go to Hebron. Okay. That would, be, that would be easy to follow, right? That'd be so simple. But you know, God wants us to inquire of him too. On our situations in life, the things we come across, especially, you know, he wants us to inquire of him on all the things. But what about the big decisions? Will you take time to inquire of the Lord on the big decisions in your life? I mean, decisions like who do you marry? Where do you work? Where do you live? You know, all of these kinds of things, all, these, these are important decisions. Should I buy a house? Shouldn't I buy a house? What do I do? All of these things, do we inquire of the Lord or do we just assume that we're perfectly capable of making that decision on our own? You see, God wants the relationship where we will inquire of him. And I know what somebody says. Somebody will say, well, I've tried inquiring of the Lord and I just don't hear from him very often. Well, how does the Lord speak to us? How can the Lord speak to us? What are the practical ways the Lord can speak to us today in our culture? Well, he would speak to us through his word, right? The Holy Bible. People would say he speaks to us in prayer. He speaks to us through our circumstances. You know, he speaks to us through other people. He speaks to us through music or even that still small voice of the Lord. There's a, there's a lot of different ways that the Lord may speak to us. But I want to talk briefly about what I think is the most important way, which is through his word, the word of God. God wants to speak to us through the word. Now, if you've been a part of different churches, maybe you've heard of prophets speaking to us, somebody on behalf of God. Maybe you've heard of, you know, different situations. People have heard audible voices and people have heard different things and, and all of these things. Are, is it possible that God could speak in those ways? Absolutely. He absolutely could. But here's what I've come to find out in my life. Outside of God's word, Outside, when God speaks outside of his word, at least in my life, and I'm speaking for myself here, I have, sometimes I receive what I would call an uncertain message. I'm not sure, is it really God speaking? You ever heard, maybe you've been in prayer and you've kind of heard that still small voice that says, all right, Lord, uh, you know, Rob, I want you to do this. I want you to do something like that. I want you to go here. I want you to talk to this person. You always ask yourself, or at least I do, God, is that really you? Is that really you? Or am I just kind of thinking that on my own? Am I just kind of making that up in my own head? Well, I want to tell you a quick story. If it's God, he'll confirm it for you. All right? I want to tell you how our church got started. Some of you may know this if you've been with us for a while. Some of you have no idea. You've never heard this before. But after coming from South Florida to Cumberland, Maryland to plant a church, I'd been here about a year. And, uh, you know, having never planted a church before, I didn't really know what I was doing, but I knew that God had called me. I was certain of that because he had confirmed that to me in his word as well as other ways. So one day, Rebecca was, was, was homeschooling the kids, and, and she basically had, you know, in a, in a very nice way, and I, was, I, I had to leave the house to get out of the way so she could get the schoolwork done, and it was a good time for me to go spend time with the Lord. So I am there praying one day, sitting at the park, 
And uh, I hear that still small voice in my heart. And it says to me, it's time to start the Bible study. And I'm going to paraphrase here. I don't remember the exact words. It's time to start the Bible study. I want you to go into town to the Queen City Cream. You guys know where that is? The Queen City Creamery? I know where it's at. Yeah. Ice cream. They have a room upstairs. I want you to talk to the owners. And they're going to let you rent the room for nothing. And that's where I want you to start the Bible study. And I thought, well, that's pretty cool. You know, I think I just heard from God. You know, so I went home that night and I talked to Rebecca and she said, well, how'd your day go? I said, I think I heard from the Lord today. And she goes, well, what did he say? He goes, well, we're supposed to go to the creamery and, and uh, ask him about a room and they're going to let us rent this room and we can start the Bible study there. And she goes, great. What did they say? I said, I didn't go. And she said, why didn't you go? I said, well, you know how sometimes, sometimes you think you heard from the Lord, but you're really not sure if you heard from, maybe this is just my own idea. And, and honestly, I don't want to look stupid walking in there. You know, if God didn't say this, you know, I really wasn't sure. And I tell you this because when God speaks to you sometimes through that still small voice or these other ways besides, besides the word of God, there's, there can be an uncertain message there. But if, you, if you're looking to confirm it, he will. So she told me, she said, and, and your wife always gives you good counsel, by the way. She said, you ought to go tomorrow. You should really go tomorrow and talk to the Queen City Creamery and see if you can, you know, see what they say. So I said, okay, I will. So instead of going to the creamer, I went back to the park that I was at. And I sat at the same picnic table, and I opened up to the same area of Scripture. And I said, all right, God, if this is really you, would you confirm it to me? You know, and then you start doing silly things. All right, make a, make a leaf fall out of the tree right now, you know, and nothing happens. Uh, all right, make this happen, you know. And, and you're just kind of going, no, nothing, nothing's happening. It's just I don't feel any different. And so I went home that day. And she goes, well, how did, what did what the, what the Queen City Creamery say? And I said, I didn't go. And she's thinking, you're going to start a church? You have no faith. No, she didn't say that at all. She said, you know, you, 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 might, you really should go. She was very encouraging. And uh, I said, okay, tomorrow I'll go. And that, that was a Thursday, so the next day was a Friday. So uh, on Friday morning, I got up, and I, I, had to, I had a part-time job at that time, and I was working. And I walked into where I was working, and uh, one of my friends there said to me, and he knew I was here to start a church. And uh, he said to me, he said, hey, uh, how's, the, how's, the church, how's the church plant going? And I said, uh, well, um, you know, it, it's really not. Maybe we need to find a place to meet and, you know, trying to, maybe we need to, we need to find a place to meet. And I was real kind of uncertain about it. And he, and he looks at me, and this is true. He goes, you know, there's an ice cream store over here, and they have a room upstairs, and, and they just might let you rent that. And I said, uh, I'll be right back. <laughs> I'm going. I got the confirmation I need, and I went into the ice cream store, and I introduced myself to the owner, and I said, hey, I'd like to start a Bible study. And she said, absolutely, you can start it upstairs. It, doesn't, don't, it won't cost you anything, and you can start meeting here. And that's how our church got started, meeting as a weekly Bible study in the upstairs room there on the Queen City Creamery. And I share that big, long story with you. One, because it's kind of funny. You can see that I'm human, too. And, uh, and two, when the Lord speaks in ways outside of his word, they're fallible. They can be uncertain. We're not sure. But if we pursue them, he will confirm them. But... When the Lord speaks within his word, inside the Bible, we have a rock-solid, dependable message. We don't have to wonder, is, does God really want me to do this? When the Lord speaks about something in his word, we can take it to the bank, if you will. We can, de we can depend on it. We can count it as fact. We don't have to, to wonder, is this, is this really for me? Yes, it's for you. If you read it, it's for you. If you heard it taught, it's for you. There's a reason that he's teaching. There's a reason that he's saying what he's saying. It's for us. Now, it doesn't mean that God can't and he won't communicate to us through these other ways. 
But whatever way he's communicating to us outside of God's word, we must then hold it up to God's word and say, does it line up? Because if, he's, if I feel I have this voice inside of me telling me to do this, but it doesn't line up with the facts of scripture, it's not God. It's not God at all. If there's something inside me, well, I really feel like I want to do this. I really want to feel like I should do this. I really, I really need to know what we need before we move out. And David realized this. I need to hear from God. I need to know what God wants me to do. It's the same thing in our life. I want to give you another, one more example in my life. Um, last year, when we were praying about buying the radio station, everything had lined up. Everything had worked out perfect. And God had had his hand in everything. But when it actually came down to, to buying the station, when it actually came down to, all right, it's time to, we're getting really close. You know, contracts are being signed. Lawyers are involved. It's getting really, really close. I, I needed to hear from God. Now, I had already heard from God in the sense that we needed to move forward on this. And, and I had already felt that that's, and the doors were already opening. The circumstances already presented something that God wanted us to do. But I needed, and this is my, whenever I have a big decision, I go before the Lord. And I said, Lord, I need it in your word. I really, really need to hear what we're doing in your word, okay? So I took, I took four days. Four days, uh, I rented a cabin up in New Germany State Park. And I told my wife, I said, I'm just going to take a bunch of water with me. I'm going to fast and I'm going to pray because I need to make sure this is what we're supposed to do. Because I realized the consequences of making the wrong choice. I realized that as a, as a, you know, we're not a big mega church, you know, but as we take on the, 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 the burden of a radio station, if God hasn't called us to do that, that would crush us, both financially and, and the volunteers that have to do the station. You know, it, would, it would just devastate us. If we're doing something that God hasn't called, it's going to be a huge burden. It's going to be hard for us to carry. So I took four days, and I was fasting, and I was praying. And like I said, God had already, I'd already believed that we were moving in the right direction. I'd already believed that we were heading in the right, in the right way. But I want to share something with you. On day four, God's got a sense of humor, okay? Day four, I'm hungry, all right? And I'm reading the Bible, and I'm praying. I'm like, all right, Lord, you know, there's, you, know I'm, you go for walks, and you're just kind of saying, Lord, what do, I, what do you want me to do? Are you sure? And really what I was looking for from God, I said, God, I need confirmation in your word. I need you to show me something. I need you to speak to me in your word somehow, some way that I know this is God speaking to me, and I'm moving in the right direction. And I came across... Zechariah chapter 7. Now, maybe you don't know what Zechariah chapter 7 is, but I want to sum it up for you. God, it basically says to the nation Israel, obedience is better than fasting. Obedience is better than fasting. When I read those first couple of verses in Zechariah chapter 7, it was as if God told me, I'm hungry. I haven't eaten in four days. God said, obedience is better than fasting. It was like God was right there in the room with me, and he said, listen, I've already given you direction. I've already told you what to do. Don't, don't be staying here fasting. Go get something to eat if you're hungry. Just be obedient in what you want me to do. What I, being obedient in what I've asked you to do. I share both of those stories because in one place, I share where God spoke to me in his word. You know what I did after that? I went and got something to eat. I was hungry, but I also was obedient. As David here in our passage tonight, it happened after this that David inquired of the Lord. He doesn't know what to do next. He's trying to figure out what's the next step in my life. You ever been there? Can I encourage you to inquire of the Lord? Can I encourage you that he will meet you in his word? He does have a still small voice that will speak to your heart. He will talk to you or speak to you through other people. He will speak to you. Sometimes he'll speak through music. Whatever different ways that he speaks, you must always make sure it lines up to your word. 
But then sometimes people say, well, Rob, I've tried that. I still don't hear from the Lord. And here's what I've come to find out. If I, number one, if I want to hear from the Lord, I have to want to hear from the Lord. Think about that. If I want to hear from the Lord, I have to really have a desire to hear from God. Do you think God's going to speak to me if I really don't want to hear? And number two, I have to be willing to obey what I hear. Same thing for you. You see, you might say, well, all right, God, what do you want me to do? Well, he didn't say nothing, so I guess it's my choice. Does it work that way? How much, how badly do you want to hear God's voice? How badly do you want to receive the direction in your life? How badly do you want the confirmation? Are you willing to go without food? Are you willing to go without sleep and spend a night in prayer or spend a night reading the word? Are you willing to, to take these things of life and say, listen, Lord, your direction is more important. I need to hear from you before I take this next step. As a matter of fact, I'm not going anywhere. Or when Moses did that, he wanted to see the glory of the Lord. He said, God, I'm not going anywhere if you're not going with me. Show me, show me who you are, Lord. And he put him in the cleft of the rock and the thunder and the storms and everything came by, the earthquakes. And where did he see the Lord? In the still small voice. That was Exodus chapter 22. But for our life, the application is, I ask this. Number one, do you inquire of the Lord before you make decisions? And do you give him time to respond? Or is your inquiry just kind of passive to say, I inquired? I asked God, he didn't say anything, so I guess it's up to me. Will you wait for him to respond? And will you obey when he does respond? Because I fully believe that if you go to the Lord and say, Lord, tell me what to do, and you want to, well, I just want your opinion like you're one of my cabinet members. That's not, that's, not, that's not submitting yourself before God. When you go to the Lord, if you want to hear what God has to say, you better have already decided you're going to follow that. You don't get a choice to hear what God says and then go, well, I, yeah, I don't really like that. I'd rather, that, that, thanks for your input, God, but I'm going this way. Why would he ever speak to somebody like that? Because he already knows what you're going to choose before you choose it, right? But how, how much are you willing to give up to make sure you hear from God? How, much, how important is it to you that you've inquired and heard from God? You see, we read it in one sentence. We, we read it happened after this that David inquired of the Lord. And we act like in our mind it's going to happen one, two, three. And it might have happened that way. We don't know for sure. But I can tell you that in my life, sometimes inquiring of God takes days. It might take months. It could even take years. Inquiring of the Lord is not something that we should take lightly. As a matter of fact, it's something we should learn to do regularly. Regularly. Especially with the big decisions especially with the big decisions in life. Inquire of God. So David does. And I like this because he's, now look what God says. David says, shall I go up to any of the cities of Judah? And God says, yep, go up. But he doesn't tell him where to go. He could have told him, yep, go on up to Hebron. But he doesn't. Why? Because he wants the relationship. He wants him to ask the next question. So I got to believe that David, I mean, this is my own personal opinion here. Maybe this is a possibility. David packed up, got ready to go, then realized, I don't know where I'm going. I got to inquire the Lord again. God, where do you want me to go? I want you to Hebron. Perfect. Why didn't he just tell him all in one sentence? Because he wants that relationship. That's where we become dependent upon God. That's where we humble ourselves before God and say, God, where is it that you want me to go? Can I go up? Yes. Where do I go? Here's where I want you to go. And then he does the next most important thing. He goes. He goes, it says David, verse two. So David went up there. He obeyed. Oh, shame on us if we inquire of the Lord and we get a direction and we fail to obey. Shame on us. What a sad place that would be for us to live in a Christian life. 
I know what I'm supposed to be doing, but I'm just not ready to do it, so I'm gonna hang out here. Ask for confirmation, God will give it to you. He's long-suffering, remember? Remember Gideon throwing out the fleeces? Put it this way, God, then get it wet and make the ground dry. Then make the fleece wet and there be, okay, and God met him right there. God wants to confirm to you what he wants us to do. But it's our part is to be obedient to it. We must obey, and David obeys. It says, in his, David went up there and his two wives also, Ahinoam, the Jezreelitess, and Abigail, the widow of Nabal, the Carmelite. David brought up the men who were with him every man with his household, so they dwelt in the cities of Hebron. Remember the men that were with him? Remember who they were? Back from 1 Samuel chapter 22, they're distressed, they're in debt, and they're discontented. That's his army. A bunch of men that are distressed, in debt, and discontented. But he's poured into them. He's taught them the fear of God we read about in the Psalms. And now here they are. They're moving up with him. They're in Hebron. Verse 4, the men of Judah came, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. And they told David, saying, the men of Jabesh-Gilead were the ones who buried Saul. So David comes up. He's living in the land of Judah in Hebron. And the people of Judah come and they anoint him king. Now, Judah was only one tribe of the nation Israel. There's 11 others that David will not be anointed king over at this time. He will be later. But at this point, he's only anointed over the one tribe. And they tell him something when he gets there. They say, hey, listen, the guy's from Jabesh-Gilead. Remember where Jabesh-Gilead was? That was from the tribe of Gad living on the east side of the Jordan River. That's Reuben, Gad, and half-tribe of Manasseh didn't go into the promised land. That was the tribe that Saul, that was the city that Saul, when he first became king, he went and defended. He cut up the ox and sent it out to the nation Israel. And they said, we're gonna defend Jabesh Gilead. And all the men came and he defended Jabesh Gilead. That's who that is. And remember, they're probably honoring Saul in the fact that they took his, when Saul and Jonathan's body were hung on the walls in Beth Sheehan, they came and got his bodies down. They buried him. This is Jabesh Gilead. But he also wants to tell them something. I'm the king of Judah. But he tells them, he tells them it in a way where he's, he's blessing them. It says, verse five, so David sent messengers to the men of Jabesh Gilead. And he said to them, you are blessed of the Lord for you have shown this kindness to your Lord, to Saul and have buried him. And now may the Lord show kindness and truth to you. I also will repay you this kindness because you have done this thing. Now, therefore, let your hands be strengthened and be valiant for your master Saul is dead. And also the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. So he's blessing them. He's letting them know he's coming in peace. I'm blessing you guys. I'm, you know, I ask, I'm asking the Lord to, to show you kindness, which means loyalty and goodness. I want the Lord to show you truth, which is trustworthy and faithfulness. And I'm going to repay you kindness because you've taken, because you've taken Saul and you've given him a proper burial. Remember the relationship between David and Saul. What was it? Saul hated David. Saul's tried to kill David multiple times. But yet David would never raise his hand against the anointed. Not only, did, not only did David not slay Saul physically, he didn't slay him in his heart. We talked about that previously, how the relationship, David really was a man of God. He took God's anointed, even though Saul wasn't living like he should, even though he was making mistakes, he didn't raise his hand against him. And he also tells Jabesh Gilead, hey, I've been anointed king over, over Judah, over the tribe of Judah. And look at verse eight. But Abner, the son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, took Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanaim. And he made him king over Gilead and the Asherites, over Jezreel, over Ephraim, over Benjamin, and over all Israel. Ishbosheth, Saul's son, was 40 years old when he began to reign over Israel, and he reigned two years. Only the house of Judah followed David. At the time that David was king in Hebron, 
over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. So Abner, who was, the, who was Saul's captain, this number two guy in charge, if you will, he decides that because Saul's dead, it's time to appoint a king over Israel, and he appoints Ishbosheth. Ishbosheth is one of Saul's sons, uh, one of the sons that was still alive. Jonathan uh, was slain in the battle, and he appoints Ishbosheth. Why would he do such a thing? Probably looking out for himself. He wants to make sure the kingdom, that's the way the kingdom would be passed down within the family. But he's probably looking out for himself. He wants to keep his job. That would, that would seem to make sense. And notice he's appointed king over all of Israel, all of Israel. Now, when you have a king over one tribe and a king over the other 11 tribes, you can bet what's coming, right? Problems. You're going to see some issues coming. And that's what we see coming up to us in chapter 12, or, cha- or verse 12. Now, Abner, the son of Ner, and the servants of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, went out from Mahanaim. To Gibeon. And Joab, the son of Zariah, the servants of David, went out and met them by the pool of Gibeon. Now, Joab was kind of the one in charge of, of David's army. He was, they, were, they were both guys high up in their armies. And so these two, we'll just call them generals, if you will, kind of something like that. These two generals are going to meet. And Abner says to Joab, let the young men now arise and compete before us. And Joab said, let them arise. So they arose and went over by number, 12 from Benjamin, followers of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and 12 from the servants of David. So, in a sense, they've declared a competition. You get your 12 men, I'll get my 12 men, and we'll just have them do battle and we'll see what happens. And we'll see who wins that battle. And we'll, you know, kind of like the same thing with David and Goliath, you know. But let's just let our best warriors battle out. And if, they, and if you win, then we'll be your servants. And if we win, then we'll be, you can be our servants. So, that's, that's kind of what's taking place here. Verse 16. Uh, Each one grasped his opponent by the head and thrust his sword into his opponent's side, so they fell down together. Therefore, that place was called the Field of Sharp Swords, which is in Gibeon. So there was a very fierce battle that day, and Abner and the men of Israel were beaten before the servants of David. So did you catch what happened? It wasn't much of a battle. They each stabbed each other, and they all died. There's a battle taking place, you, your best 12 against my best 12, and they each grab each other's head, and they each stick the sword, in, and they all die. And then what happens after that? The battle really breaks out, because that's when the men really start to battle. It says in verse 18, now the three sons of Zariah were there, Joab and Abishai and Ashael, and Asahel was as fleet of foot as a wild gazelle. And Asahel pursued Abner, and in going, he did not turn to the right hand or to the left from the following. Remember, Abner was the, was the general of whose army? Ishbosheth's, right? Of Saul's, would, be, would have been what, remnant of Saul's army. So Abner, uh, he pursues Abner. And in going, he did not turn to the right hand or to the left from the following Abner. Verse 20, then Abner looked behind him and said, are you Asahel? And he answered him, I am. And Abner said to him, turn aside to your right hand or to your left and lay hold of one of the young men and take his armor for yourself. But Asahel would not turn aside from following him. So imagine this, there's a foot pursuit going on. There's, there's one guy chasing another and Abner is the, the more seasoned warrior here. And he says, hey, are you, are, you, are, are you this? Are you him? Are you Asahel? And he says, yeah, that's me. And he goes, listen, turn over there. Go get, go get one of the young men. Don't come after me. In a sense, he's warning him. He's saying, hey, you're going to get hurt. You, you know, you're, you're out of your league. But the young man says, I want to take him. He's, he's the general. I, I, want, I, want, I, want, I want his armor. I want to go back to my camp with his stuff. I want to take care of him. So he's been warned once. And Abner says to him, turn aside from following me. Why should I strike you to the ground? How then could I face your brother Joab? 
So listen, we don't do this. We're, We're officers in an army. Don't do this together. However, he refused to turn aside. Therefore, Abner struck him. I'm in verse 23. Abner struck him in the stomach with the blunt end of the spear. So the spear came out of his back and he fell down there and he died on the spot. So it was that as many came to the place where Ashahel fell down and died, stood still. So just to get your picture right in your mind, they're chasing each other. Abner warns him, hey, go, go after somebody else. Go on, go after somebody else. And finally he says no. So Abner turns around and it looks like, or it sounds like he uses the blunt end of the spear. Not the sharp end, in a, in a sense to sort of uh, maybe stop him, maybe kind of divert him, something along those lines. But apparently it, it was a little harder than that. And, and he ends up dying over it. He ends up, he ends up he end, we read here that he ends up dead. Verse 24, Joab and Abishai also pursued Abner. And the sun was going down when they came to the hill of Amah, which is before Giah by the road to the wilderness of Gibeon. Now the children of Benjamin gathered together behind Abner, so there's some reinforcements coming in, and became a unit and took their stand on top of the hill. So the battle's continuing here. Then Abner calls to Joab and he said, shall the sword devour forever? In other words, is this going to continue forever? Are we just going to keep fighting forever? So the short, shall the sword devour forever? Do you not know that it will be bitter in the latter end? How long will it be until you tell the people to return from pursuing who? Their brethren. Their brethren. We're witnessing a sense of what? A civil war taking place. This is within the nation of Israel. They're, 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 they're killing each other. They're chasing each other. So Joab blew a trumpet. All the people stood still and did not pursue Israel anymore nor did they fight anymore. And Abner and his men went on all that night through the plain, crossed over the Jordan, and went through all Bithron, and they came to Mahanaim. So Joab returned from pursuing Abner, and when he had gathered all the people together, there were missing, they were, they were missing of David's servant 19 men and Asahel. But the servants of David had struck down of Benjamin and Abner's men 360 men who died. So David's men won that battle. David's men won that battle significantly, but the war is not over. The war is not over. They took up Ashahel and buried him in their father's tomb, which was in Bethlehem. And Joab and his men went all night, and they came to Hebron at daybreak. Now, the first verse in chapter 3, Now there was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. But David grew stronger and stronger, and the house of Saul grew weaker and weaker. So we come into a place in the, we come into a point in the time of Israel's history where there's an internal conflict. There's a civil war taking place. There's a battle between David and between Ishbosheth. There's a battle going on within, within the country, within, within God's people. They're fighting among themselves. Isn't that sad? But do you remember way back in the book where the people came to Samuel? They said, Samuel, we want a king. We want a king. We want to be a king like everybody else. And Samuel said, you have a king. God's your king. God, God wants to be the, one, the leader of your nation. No, no, Samuel, we want, to, we want to be like everyone else. And God told Samuel, fine, give him a king. And he gave him King Saul. And he gave him King Saul. And Saul represented the king the people wanted. He was a good-looking guy, head and shoulders above the rest. He was going to lead him into battle. But David, David represented the man after God's own heart, remember? And now we see a battle between the two. We see a battle between David and we see a battle between what's left of Saul and Saul's army. And we see this civil war sort of unfolding. And the battle is raging within the nation of Israel. 
And I think that's a picture of sometimes the battle that can rage inside of us. You ever have a battle in your life? You ever have, you ever have an internal struggle where it feels like there's a battle going on? It, it's a civil war in a sense where you're trying to do certain things, but there's this battle taking place. You see, Saul, Saul and his lineage, they represent the flesh. They represent the flesh. They represent sin. Saul was a man who didn't want to follow God. Saul took things into his own hand. When Samuel said, wait to sacrifice, what did Saul do? I can't wait any longer. I did it myself. Saul wanted to pretend like he was following God. He wanted to act like he was following God. But when, it, when, when his back was to the wall, what did, he, what did he do? He went to the median. He went to the sorcerer. Tell me what's going to take place. So he, he, he pursued and tried to kill David. David had done nothing to Saul to deserve that. Saul represents sin and self. But David, on the other hand, David, this picture that's kind of burning within us, he represents, he's a picture of Christ to come. He rep represents King Jesus. You have King Saul and King Jesus. I'm gonna just make this parallel if you can kind of follow along with me. They're trying to make a treaty or compromise between the line of King Saul and the line of King David. It'll never work. It's not going to work. Just like there's no compromise that can exist within us between self and God or self and Christ. It doesn't work in our life. If you're the type of Christian that has this ongoing battle, I suggest you're trying to make a compromise in yourself, and it will not work. One of them has to be raised to the throne. Otherwise, you will live a life of complete and utter misery because you'll be battling. You'll be, you'll be falling short. You'll be failing. You'll never receive the abundant life in Christ. You'll just have this battle raging on inside of you. I read this. Alan Redpath put it this way. He said, in the lives of many Christian people today, there is a raging, literally a civil war. The flesh, the kingdom of Saul, it struggles with the spirit, the kingdom of David. The conflict is bitter. We do everything we possibly can to hold up the tottering kingdom of self so that it might exist just a bit longer, just a little bit longer. If only we could preserve some rights. If only we could have at least part of our own way. If only we could keep this or that at any cost. We feel we, feel we must bolster up this kingdom of self that we cannot let ourselves be crucified with Christ. If there's a battle raging within you, and if you're struggling with what's right, what's wrong, can I tell you that there is nothing on the throne in your life you're, you're, you're trying to compromise between both. Well, how do I solve the problem? You put Christ on the throne. You put God on the throne in your life. You put Jesus Christ as the one. He's the one I'm going to follow. When I ask for his will, I know I'm going to do it. I don't just ask because I want to hear his opinion. I ask because I'm not moving until he says to go. You say, Lord, I'm staying here. I'm staying planted. I'm not doing a thing until you lead me, until you tell me, until you show me. Will you go without food to hear his voice? It's called fasting. Will you go without the luxuries of life to hear his voice? Will you spend time alone? Will you go away somewhere to get away from your daily activities so you can hear the voice of God on what you're supposed to do? Or is it just sometimes as Christians, we just want to hear his opinion because we want to decide what we're going to do for ourselves? That's not what we should be about. You see, to be a Christian means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. To be a follower of Jesus Christ means he has the authority in my life. The authority in my life comes from his word. It means I've taken the Bible and I'm going to hold it up as the plumb line in my life. Everything in my life will be compared to the Bible. Is it right? Is it wrong? What does the Bible say? That's what it means to be a Christian. A Christian is not somebody who just shows up in church on Sunday. 
or Thursday or Wednesday or whenever the midweek service is and volunteers and does those things. We have enough of those people in our culture. We need people, to, if you want to change our culture, if you, you know, we talk about the drug problems in our cities. We talk about, we read the papers and there's a heroin problem. If you want to change that, they need Jesus Christ to change that. That's what's going to change our culture, not, not a church or not, a, not, not even a group meeting. It's going to be, the, it's going to be the, when someone realizes the blood of Jesus Christ died for them and that they're free from that. They don't no longer have to live in that. It doesn't just come from, you know, because we gave them a free meal or we handed them out and, you know, we had a little outreach or we did something like that. That can all be the, the method that we carry Christ to somebody and those are good things. But Christ is what changes somebody's life. Nothing else. Nothing else. It says David grew stronger and stronger and Saul grew weaker and weaker. That started a long time ago when Saul had the kingdom torn away from him. That wasn't the first time. The increasing strength of David and the increasing weakness of Saul's house did not begin when Saul died. It began when the Holy Spirit was taken away from Saul and placed on David. That's when it began. The struggle that we live, that we, if, we, if you have or if I have a struggle within me, the way to overcome that is through the Holy Spirit, through the power that we've been given in Jesus Christ, through the word of God. Don't believe the lies that Satan wants to put in your, in your mind. Satan wants you to think you're bound. Satan wants to think that you, you're not free from sin. But can I tell you that you are? How do I know that you're free from sin? Because the Bible says it in Romans chapter 5 and Romans chapter 6. Read it for yourself if you don't believe me. That's how we know that we're free from sin because the Bible tells me that. Don't live a Christian life struggling. It's a miserable place to be. It'd be better if you just put Saul on the throne of your life and went and had a good time. Wouldn't it? I mean, why live the struggle? Who wants to live the struggle? Jesus didn't die so you could struggle. You say, wait a minute, Rob, wait a minute. I know that verse in Romans chapter seven where Paul says, the things I don't wanna do, I do, and the things I wanna do, I don't do. I know that verse, so, so that's kind of like me. I'm, I'm kind of like Paul, and you know, I see that Paul struggles, and I, I, you know, that's kind of like me. Would you turn with me to Romans chapter seven? We're gonna pick up in verse 18 for the sake of time. I would encourage you to go back and read the whole chapter on your own later. Verse 18, it says this, Romans chapter seven, it says, for I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. I agree with that. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good I do not find. That's in his flesh. For the good that I will to do, I do not do. But the evil I will not to do, that I practice. Now, if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who, excuse me, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. I find then a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. But I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. Now, just so we're clear, because I know that gets confusing when I'm reading that. Paul's saying, there's a point in my life where there was, I wanted to do what was right. But every time I tried to do what was right, I failed. I ended up doing what was wrong. And I realized there's a law that, remember, he was, before, before he was saved, he was a Jew. He was living under the law. So he realizes there's this constant battle in his life. I'm under this legalistic system. I'm trying to accomplish the best I can to fulfill that law, and I keep falling short. I keep falling short. I keep falling short. I keep falling short. Paul is not describing his life after he was saved here. Some people would say that he is. Some people would say, oh, he's just the struggling life of a Christian. Jesus didn't die so that we could live a struggling life like that. Jesus died so we could be free, okay? 
Paul will go on to say, and look what he says, the things I don't want to do, I do. The things I want to do, I don't do. Verse 24, oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Paul says, who's going to deliver me from this life of uncertainty? Who's going to deliver me from this life of wanting to do the right thing, but not doing the right thing? Who's going to, who's going to deliver me through this wretched man that I am? Look what he says. Thanks be to Jesus Christ. Who's going to deliver you, Paul? You can't do it in your own willpower. You can't do it in your own strength. You can't. This is not, you know, mind over matter type stuff. You can't do it. The law, was, and Paul would later tell us the law is so that we could see that we needed a savior. So what are you saying, Rob? I'm saying that in our lives as Christians, far too many of us live a struggle. We live this bickering back and forth. We want to do the right thing and we don't want to do the right thing. I want you to come to the conclusion tonight that you don't have to live that life. You can accomplish one or the other, but the struggle is a terrible place to live. If you're willing to put Christ on the throne of your life and receive the grace, do you realize there's no more struggle? Think about that. If I put Christ and I elevate him, anything I've done wrong is washed clean. I don't have to worry about it. It's not my concern any longer. It's, it's in the past. I'm saved. That's what I want. Don't live the Christian life. That's like the Jews wandering in the desert. Never coming into the promised land. Just wandering in the desert. What are you doing? I'm in the desert. Well, get out of the desert. I'm just, no, I'm in the desert. I'm in a desert part of my life. Well, get out. How do I get out? Go into the promised land. Walk across the Jordan River. Be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Be fulfilled. Live a life for Christ. Put him on the throne. Accept his promises. Accept his word to be true. It's really rather simple, but we complicate it. 